With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Hi, welcome back to Heard Tell. Okay, we're going to talk a little Taiwan, a little China. We talk about it here, there, and yonder, but people are using it as a comp that doesn't really apply. Zach Yost is with us. He's going to explain it to us. Freelance writer, another Young Voices contributor, and he's got a good piece out on this in Law and Liberty we're going to discuss. Zach, how are you? Thank you for joining us on the program, sir. I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. All right. It's died down a little bit as the war in Ukraine drags on, but we still hear a lot of this. Look, there's a natural inclination here because there's only so many major powers in the world, right? The U.S., China being supreme. Russia's kind of been diminished with the Ukraine situation for now. But at the beginning, a lot of people were like, oh, well, Russia invaded Ukraine, so that means China's going to invade Taiwan. It's not that China probably wouldn't like to do that, but there's not a good comp here for a lot of reasons. You lay them out. Give folks just kind of the big picture, though. Wow, that's kind of a lazy comp right off the jump, though. Right. Yeah. As soon as the war broke out, uh, lots of people in the foreign policy establishment were comparing Ukraine to Taiwan, saying that if, you know, uh, if we fail to stop this invasion, we being the whole West, but mostly the U.S., That'll give China the green light to invade Taiwan. But there are a lot of uh, differences, significant differences on multiple levels. On the purely uh, strategic level, uh, one of the major differences is that China is enormous. It's giant, and it historically, this is also the case, a lot of its resources are already tied up either patrolling and defending it's like 14,000 mile long border that's contested especially with India and Vietnam or garrisoning uh you know their ginormous cities uh, i mean about half of the entire chinese military does just those two things secondly on the tactical level things could not be more different um ukraine shares a giant land border with russia there is you know, that's why when the invasion started, Russia invaded on four or five fronts simultaneously. Uh, tens and tens and tens of thousands of troops crossing at once. That's not possible for a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. It would necessarily be an amphibious landing. And it would make, logistically, it would make D-Day look like a picnic uh, in terms of how complex it is. The weather patterns in the strait only have uh, basically two windows for invasion roughly in march and april and roughly in september october china does not have the lift capacity to land a hundred thousand troops on taiwan on the first day and taiwan itself is very defensible for one thing the taiwanese have been preparing to defend the island for roughly 70 years the number of beaches that can be landed on has decreased over the years thanks to literal decades of geoengineering and uh when the allies thought they'd have to invade 
what was then called Formosa during World War II, they estimated they would need a force ratio of five to one to invade and that they'd sustain 100,000 casualties. Uh, Taiwan theoretically could field two and a half million troops when you uh, mobilize the reserves and whatnot. So it's uh, not an easy feat. It's much harder than the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Yeah, Zach, you're joining us. Here's another part of it. The political calculation here, look, China has a capable military, although we can debate how capable of it, how much of it is showing just sheer numbers wise. They have a capable military. They could level the island if they really got it in their mind to. Part of the deterrent and part of the problem here is, and the reason you're talking about the amphibious nature, they needed intact. The entire calculation of this is if they took Taiwan, it's not just to eliminate them. They want it intact. They want what's there. A prolonged campaign wouldn't do that. They can't just wipe the island off the map. That doesn't achieve their goal either. That's part of the deterrent thing here is, one, you still got to cross water, which no matter how much technology you got, that's an old military problem as old as time, right? You still got to get across the water. Two is they don't really want a prolonged campaign of destruction like they've seen in some of the cities in Ukraine because it's bad for business. It's bad for their perception. They'd have to garrison it and they'd have to clean it up. And it defeats the point of why they would invade in the first place. Is that kind of a good way to sum it all up? Yeah, for sure. It's from the uh, Chinese perspective, Taiwan is a breakaway province. And while they could just, yeah, as you say, start carpet bombing the island, uh, theoretically, they want to integrate it into the rest of Chinese society. And uh, yeah, just blowing it to smithereens would be the worst way to do that. Yeah, Zach Yosh joining us. We're going to link to his piece in Law and Liberty. You pointed out here, warfare, you know, without making everybody's eyes roll into the minutiae of it, warfare has some pretty hard and fast rules to it. You know, how big your forces, you already talked about the ratio of people you would need to assault a position. You got to have more people because you're going to lose them in the assault, that sort of things. The Chinese are not dumb. China's big thing with their military hasn't been really military conquest with what we've seen Russia do with the invasion of Ukraine. They have been projecting power. They want to show power. They want to look powerful. You laid it out, the defense of Taiwan, this would be a very, very bloody affair. They have to have the calculation somewhere in there that they just don't want to take the PR hit of putting their army in the field for what very well could be a very, very costly victory or even a straight out loss. Right, yeah, it it's, would be an immense gamble on their part. Um, there are estimates all over the place. Um, a recent series of war games based on uh, publicly available information, um, in all of the base case scenarios, China loses. Uh, and it's a costly loss in some situations. 30,000 troops are captured, basically stranded on the island. And you have to think how destabilizing this would be to the actual regime in China. Uh, I mean, even though they have the Great Firewall and all this suppression of information, uh, there's actually a lot of unrest in China, and we just saw it recently with the protests against zero COVID, where they actually had to change their horrible policy because society was breaking apart. Can you imagine what it would be if there's this military disaster where tens of thousands of people are captured or killed? I mean, it would be risky to the Chinese, and I think that's why they're going to try and uh, do whatever they can to avoid this sort of last-ditch gamble that 
I mean, it would not, it would, it would be very risky on their part. Yeah. Zach Yost joining us. You touch on an important part of this. We're talking about military deterrence and that is important because of a Taiwan that would be, you know, very hard to attack. That's a deterrent. The Chinese are all about business right now. One of the great deterrents might just be that invading Taiwan would be really bad for business for China. They are in a pro look, they're not they're not dumb. They have long range plans. They know they've got some economic trouble on the horizon. They got demographic trouble on the horizon. Their entire policy right now has been to get rich before you start having economic trouble. They've tried to strike that iron once hot. War's bad for business. They're sitting there watching what's happening to the Russian economy because the Russians are coming to them for help, right? They're learning these lessons. Is just the invasion being bad for business, that's going to be as important as a deterrent as the military deterrent, isn't it? Uh, well, I wouldn't say as important, um, but I do think it would play a role, especially on the destabilizing front. I mean, Taiwanese companies, I mean, there's actually a lot of integration between economic integration between uh, Taiwan and the mainland. And uh, <laughs> uh, if all these Taiwanese companies that employ, you know, like millions of people on the mainland just stopped paying them <laughs> uh, when it became evident that an invasion was going to occur, because is also important to consider it's not like this could just happen tomorrow it'd be obvious you know from this massive buildup of resources and troops and whatnot uh that yeah that would also be a destabilizing effect however i think there's all we're already seeing a lot of sort of economic disintegration um i mean lots of factories excuse me are moving to vietnam and indonesia and things like that in the u.s there's all this push excuse me, for nearshoring, you know, relocating sort of uh, economic ties to Central and South America and whatnot. Um, I mean, I'm not, I don't, I don't really buy into the theory that trade decreases the likelihood of conflict. Um, we can just look at World War One. The UK was Germany's largest trading partner, things like that. But it doesn't, it certainly wouldn't hurt, I would say. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Yeah, Zach, you joining us. Okay, let's talk about the military deterrence. Again, these aren't good comps, but one comp that I think will be applicable here is the discussion of what arms actually help and hurt. You brought it up in your piece. We're linking to the piece. Make sure you read the whole thing. Just giving people the best and the brightest and the most advanced heavy weapons from the U.S. arsenal is not always the best military fit for a particular situation. Again, Taiwan, it's an island. It's going to be a defensive campaign. 
just sending them the best F-16s and Abrams and things like this, that might not be the best way to defend them. Talk about military deterrence and how we can actually do that. It doesn't always mean just the most expensive and the best military equipment all the time. There's layers to this, isn't there? Yeah, and this is sort of a big point of uh, contention between U.S. Uh, military planners and the Taiwanese military, where even within Taiwan, there's this big debate where they theoretically shifted to an asymmetrical defensive strategy, um, but at the same time, they want to buy more fighter jets and, as you mentioned, the a Abrams tanks and things like that, where there's a lot of question of how helpful those would be. Um, a lot of uh, planners think that it would make much more sense to basically just sell Taiwan, you know, tens of thousands of <laughs> naval mines and anti-tank and anti-aircraft, uh, you know, missile systems, very mobile, very inexpensive. Um, there, there are in a lot of uh, the uh, the Center for Strategic and International Studies just released this very large uh, war gaming uh, report. And in most of their scenarios, basically the entire Taiwanese and U.S. Uh, air force in the region is destroyed on the tarmac in the opening of the war. Um, uh, Taiwan does have airfields located, well, they have basically bunkers built into the sides of mountains <laughs> that, you know, could be hit with a nuke and they'd survive. But it's not anticipated that the Taiwanese air force is going to last very long at all. You know it probably makes much more sense for them to be investing in, you know, very inexpensive drones, things like that. But there's sort of an aspect of, you know, oh, the heroic fighter pilot sort of, uh, you know, morale boost, uh, and also just the, the, the old brass in the Taiwanese military wants these, wants peer systems with China. And it's just sort of, they're living in like the, you know, early nineties and before the world has changed. They sort of need to get with the program. And even if they don't, Congress has authority over arms exports. So they can sort of basically say, we will sell you this stuff. We won't sell you that stuff. And if I can, it also leads to a huge issue with our current policy with Ukraine. Uh, in the state of the union, Biden said that nothing is beyond American capacity. And when he said that, he echoed what was in his introduction to the 2022 National Defense Strategy, where he explicitly said, nothing is beyond our capability. Uh, but scarcity exists. We can't do everything all at once. And uh, CSIS just came out with a really great report uh, with estimating how many years it's going to take to replace all of the arms and equipment we've already sent to Ukraine. Uh, and we're continuing to send them more. It, it's going to take years and years. Meanwhile, there's a $19 billion backlog of arms that Taiwan has already ordered. So, uh, you know, we can't do both, really, is what it comes down to, unless, I mean, we have a huge shift in our uh, defense industrial base, which will, you know, inevitably eat up resources elsewhere. Yeah, Zach Yost joining us. Everybody's watching Russia and Ukraine. These are going to be the lessons learned for foreign policy and war fighters for the foreseeable future. Because we, we learn every time we do one, right? What's going to be the lesson 
for the Taiwanese. We talk about the Chinese angle on this. We talk about the U.S. angle on it. You just mentioned it. Taiwan has their own views on this thing. When they see that invasion and they're watching the Ukrainians right now, what lesson do you think they're taking from all this right now? Well, I think one lesson uh, they, well, uh, there's a few lessons I can think of that I think are applicable. One is that resistance is not futile. I mean, the U.S. military was saying for weeks before the invasion started that Ukraine would fall in like two or three weeks. Well, <laughs> here we are a year later. Um, I mean, the Ukrainian military, not in that great shape. I mean, they have a bunch of old Soviet junk, basically. Um, I mean, they've had huge, horrific losses, but they're still standing there. So I would say that one is that resistance isn't futile if people actually resist. Uh, Second, I would say that um, there's really, it, it, it will drive home the need to take into con consideration the future of air power. Um, the, the, the sort of skies in Ukraine are sort of a gray zone. No, no one side really has air superiority uh, thanks to the proliferation of uh, anti-aircraft missiles and whatnot. And uh, you, Taiwan does have a lot of anti-aircraft systems. So I think they need to focus on increasing that capacity and also reconsider, you know, are, is it worth the expense of maintaining all these fighter jets that will probably be blown up, you know, within two or three days? Um, another thing I think they need to take away, which really every world power needs to take away, is how resource intensive this war is. I mean, the U.S. is used to fighting, you know, in Afghanistan and Iraq or Libya, you know, where we just bomb, you know, un technologically unsophisticated opponents to smithereens. Uh, I mean, the U.S. has already given Ukraine over one million artillery shells. At our current rates of production, we cannot replace those. I mean, we have to ramp up production, things like that. Uh, were this war to occur, I mean, one estimate is Taiwan would run out of artillery shells within three months. Um, so <laughs> I think people really need to take stock of just how costly a war like this would be and stockpile appropriately. Yeah, and ammunition goes a lot faster than anybody estimates it. I'll tell you that right up front. Uh, Zach, good stuff. Appreciate it. We're going to link to the piece. Uh, it's in law and Liberty. Uh, you can read the whole thing for yourself. This is something to keep an eye on. Look, this is something we've been talking about for decades. You brought it up. We've been basically talking about this for 70 years. Hopefully we'll be talking about it for another 70 years. Cause that means the war that everybody fears didn't happen. My friend, let folks know where they can follow you and keep up with you until we get you back on Hartel again. Sure. So people can follow me on Twitter. It's just at Zachary Yost. Um, and, I'm also the co-host of the War Economy and State podcast hosted by the Mises Institute. I co-host that with Ryan McMakin, where just once a month, usually, we sit down and talk about some sort of do an in-depth dive into foreign policy topics uh, from, you know, a restraint and realism perspective. Great. We'll have links to all that in the show notes. Zach Yost, appreciate the time, sir. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Yes, sir.
Let's do it. Ah, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, she's back. We like her. I know you like her because y'all keep sending me emails and stuff about when Sarah coming back. She back. She got another piece out on inaugurations and accidental presidents. This is going to be fun. Always love talking a little history with our friend Sarah Stook from over in the UK. How are you, ma'am? Great to see you. I'm good. Thank you for having me on again. It's always super fun. This is fun because we don't thankfully have a presidential cycle right now, but we're entering into the 2024 presidential cycle. We'll talk about this last time you're here. We, we, you know, y'all are getting ready to do the coronation of King Charles. We do inaugurations every four years. So it's just kind of a regular, you know, it's a routine. It's just something we do. You've got eight examples here of when it wasn't routine, either by death or assassination. These are fun to go over. Let's start with the first one, though, because this is one of those not really talked about presidents very much. Johnny Tyler, as Val Kilmer would have said in Tombstone, right? John Tyler, but he was the first, and the way he handled it set the tone, kind of like George Washington being the first president. When you go first, you set the tone. The way he handled it, because the vice presidency then was not what the vice presidency now is at all, was it? You know, me and my mum were re-watching Vice yesterday, and I said to her, Dick Cheney is easily the most powerful vice president that's ever been. And for the majority of history, no one really gave a rubbish about them, even though, you know, presidents' heartbeats failed, so they had to step up. So, yeah, I mean, 1841. I mean, John Tyler didn't even reside in D.C. He was just chilling out at home in Virginia. That's how irrelevant it seemed to be. Yeah, now he gets called in because um, William Henry Harrison gets ill and dies. They had a little bit of notice. They knew he was going to die. There was a real question whether he was actually going to be the president or if he was just going to be the caretaker. You just mentioned it, one heartbeat away. We now know that the second one the president stops breathing, the vice president immediately becomes president. That was very much an issue then, though. He had to fight for that and set that standard, though, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, it was unprecedented. This had never happened before, so nobody knew what's it when something is unprecedented. You know, like maybe you could argue maybe Brexit was unprecedented, like things like that were first thing to happen. And the Constitution doesn't really make it super-duper clear, but people probably should have thought of that when you elect really old men who walk around in swamps with no coat on. And that swamp was literal, not just, you know, D.C. itself. There's another one you cover here. This is an interesting name in history because another president that's mostly been forgotten by modern, Millard Fillmore, um, Zachary Taylor, another president that doesn't get a lot of the pub nowadays, but two really interesting individuals. Fillmore got forgotten, not for ungood reason, because he was not a very good president. Uh, there's a lot of the pre-Civil War stuff that runs through his administration, especially just neglecting things, kicking the can down the road, not dealing with things. But Miller Fillmore's inauguration and his ascendancy to the presidency is rather interesting, even though most people have forgotten about it. For those folks that don't know who he is, walk us through it a little bit. I mean, I think the only reason he's remembered because he has a fantastic name. I think that's like the thing, isn't it? You remember somebody when they've got a strange name and he was like the example of it. He was put on the Taylor ticket because he was from New York and New York was super important. He basically spent most of his time in Albany or NYC. And then word came that uh, Zachary Taylor had died. And he thought, oh, I'm president now. So Taylor lasted a little bit longer than Harrison, but only, well, everybody lasted longer than Harrison, apart from maybe Liz Truss. 
Let's try. You know what? I'd have to look it up. It's pro. I I think trust got him by just a little bit. Yeah, um, it's not much. It's like a really small margin. They didn't do the lettuce thing back then, but if they did, the lettuce would have won that one. The compromise of 1850 is the dominant thing about Miller to Fillmore. For folks that don't remember this, th this is one of those um, piles of tinder that was laying around that helped spark the Civil War. It involves slavery. He tried to basically just kick the can of the question down the road, and it really blew up on him where he made everybody mad, made the situation far, far worse. And then, of course, 11 years later, we have an all-out Civil War. But that's really what he's more remembered for besides just his ascendancy as a vice president. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those historical what-ifs, isn't it? You know, had Zachary Taylor done a full term, would that kind of thing happened? It's the same for every president. Had Kennedy lived, would he have done the Civil War? You know, if Reagan had died, what would Bush have done? You know, there's so many what-ifs, and that is a really interesting one. But I think Zachary Taylor probably would have done the same kind of thing because he wasn't a politician, really. He was a soldier, you know, and that's why people were surprised he died old rough and ready all strong and tough suddenly dies because he's got what diphtheria or gastroenteritis or something like that so yeah i think it's one of those it was a, a tricky political situation the obvious answers to people today would be just free the slaves because slavery is awful but something like that back then would have been you know a non-entity it wouldn't have happened like that so i can understand them wanting to kick the can down the road but it really didn't help as evidenced by the Civil War. Yeah, and you wrote about it before. There's quite a bit of evidence. We think of presidential assassinations, you know, bullets, something like this, something big and spectacular. Um, McKinley got gut shot and took several, took quite a while to die. Lincoln's assassination, JFK's on video, so that one's really good. There's pretty good evidence. He may have just died because they had bad water at the White House. Like that's almost inconceivable. You want to talk about times changing? We had to. We had a president die probably because he had contaminated drinking water in the White House. People like a good conspiracy theory. It's why people think Warren G. Harding was poisoned by his wife. I mean, to be fair, she had good reason. He was a terrible husband, but he had a heart attack. He had really poor heart. Things like that happen. Though it didn't help with the fact she refused an autopsy makes it look a bit sketchy if you get her on a true crime website everyone be like the wife is hiding something <laughs> sarah stuck joining us all right another guy with a great name for a president chester a arthur not to be confused with all the other arthurs out there here's another one kind of like tyler he was a window dressing vice president he wasn't part of garfield's administration in any way he spent most of his time not even in dc he basically stayed in new york um this is another really interesting one where this guy was never supposed to be president and then because of what happened, became president. And it's the second one where they came from an assassination, not just the death. He obviously had uh, Lincoln and Johnson before that. And Garfield, he sort of lingered for a few days. Whereas like Lincoln died like overnight. Garfield, you know, lingered for a couple of days and everyone was um and ah and they thought he was going to be okay. And then, you know, it wasn't okay. He was quite poorly. And that's when, you know, Arthur was called and they said, look, he's, you need to come. But he was in New York when it happened because he didn't want to seem overeager, which is understandable, really. And, you know, the word came because, you know, he, Garfield died a horrific, horrible, long, worn out death of months. So, you know, what do you do? 
when a president doesn't die immediately, you know, you can't really spring in because, I mean, it already looked bad enough because the assassin yelled out, oh, now Chester Arthur will be president, which made him look implicated and people already didn't like him. So when he ascended the presidency, people really didn't trust him. And apparently he was a nice guy, you know, he loved his wife and, you know, he was quite, he was didn't want to be president that way. But at the same time, you know, the implications there were not fascinatingly good for him. Arthur's a really interesting one because he was really upset by this assassination, even though they weren't really friends or close whatsoever. But it really weighed on him that he got the post. He's one. He's the only president um, that, or the last president, I guess I should say, who did not have a vice president himself. He's mad that, isn't it? Like that's how you became president. They like, oh no, I don't need one. Yeah, it's really interesting. He tried to do some really important stuff like civil reform, which was really bad at the time. It was a hot button issue that needed addressing. But he just came off kind of meek. He was kind of kneecapped from the very beginning of his administration. And he's forgotten. You you listed it in the piece. Um, he's frequently listed as the least remembered president, which is kind of remarkable considering, you know, he's more towards the more modern era presidents. But nobody remembers the guy, even though the circumstances are extraordinary. Yeah, I kind of feel a bit bad for him because I may, I know this is like a really weird way to phrase it, but he's got quite a normal name. You remember Miller Philmont because the name is weird. Chester A. Arthur, fairly ordinary name. Chester, maybe not a name you hear a lot of, but it's certainly more, you know, common than Phil, my lad Fillmore. And that's how I just think people remember weird names and weird stories. Sarah Stook joining us, his story. And okay. From one of the least remembered to one of the most remembered presidents, I know he's one of your personal favorites, Teddy Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt. McKinley's assassination is something I've studied a little bit because I just I find it fascinating, the circumstances surrounding it. Teddy's a little different. They almost made him vice president to try to kind of keep him out of the way for the few years because everybody knew he was ambitious. Everybody knew he wanted to be president. So they're like, well, we'll make him vice president. He can't do any damage there. Right. Whoops. <laughs> Well, as Mark Hannes said, that damn cowboy could be president. And he was right. They should have listened to him. Instead of, you know, keeping him away, they thought, oh, no, I'll be fine. Because, I mean, you know, McKinley was sort of fairly young, fairly healthy. So, and it had it'd been like, what, 30 years, 20 years since the presidential assassination. Nobody thought that it was going to happen again. And then, boom, stomach shot. Yeah, and it was funny because Roosevelt actually didn't want to be vice president because he thought it was going to um, hinder him. He actually did respect McKinley quite a bit, so he didn't want to play second Finley to McKinley. He rushed to McKinley's side. McKinley was gut shot for people to know, know the full story. They thought he might live, though. He actually started to improve, but they, you know, they didn't have the modern understanding of medicine. Uh, there was internal issues, so. Roosevelt actually came, was at his side, and then went back to business as usual because they thought he was going to recover. And then McKinley took a turn for the worse. And now you have President Theodore Roosevelt, you know, one of the great, good, bad, or indifferent, one of the biggest, brashest, loudest presidencies we've ever had. He's a huge figure in American history. 
it's just amazing that he almost refused the role that made him president. Well, there is the case of it was either Harrison or Garfield, I never remember what, so I read it in a book recently, where somebody was offered the vice presidency and they said, oh, I can only guarantee it if, you know, he, he dies or something. Or obviously that president died. So that person, whoever it was, could have been president, but they didn't think that they would die or be assassinated. Because you don't, you don't think about that, really. You know, especially in the modern day, presidents can get poorly. You know, we've had plenty of presidents who've had operations and office. Reagan was shot, but you also almost think they're immortal and invincible. You know, obviously security is a lot better. So you know, hopefully there's going to be no more assassinations. But I think the only thing I can really think of is when uh, John McCain picked Sarah Palin because John McCain was old. He knew that you know if he there was a chance he might die in office and he needed somebody young to replace him. Yeah. And Roosevelt, of course, he became the first of these guys who was very well remembered. He won the presidency in his own right. He was the first ascending vice president to do that. But then when he was running his bull moose ticket later on, which was unsuccessful to return to the presidency, he himself was almost assassinated. He was actually shot. It wasn't too bad of a wound. He finished the speech famously because he had a dramatic flair for the theater. He's like, hey, I finished this speech. I'm, this is legend stuff. Let me just go ahead and rack out this 45-minute speech right quick with this bullet in my chest. Um, he almost fell to an assassin himself. That's a pretty interesting book into a political career that your last campaign you get shot and you're, you become president because of an assassination. That's just part of the legend of Theodore Roosevelt now. But that's pretty extraordinary stuff when you actually sit and think about it. Well, he knew that he wasn't mortally wounded because he wasn't coughing blood, which means it hadn't hit a lot. Basically, if you watch a film and someone's coughing blood, ain't good, they're probably going to die. And it had lodged in his glasses pocket and his speech, which was 90 minutes long, very, very thick. So he went, oh, I'm okay. You can't kill a bull moose. Don't kill the guy, please. Read on. And then went to hospital. I mean, that is just Chad behavior. Come on. All right. Silent Cow, Calvin Coolidge, interesting figure in American politics. Uh, would that more of our politicians get the nickname Silent Anything so we wouldn't have to hear from them constantly. Warren G. Hardy died. Now, Harding and Coolidge had an interesting relationship. They weren't particularly close, but Harding, who was pretty good with administration stuff, he did have Coolidge sit in on cabinet meetings and things, which was not the norm now. Now that's kind of the norm. The president takes the briefings, does the cabinet meetings. Harding, somewhere in the back of his mind, understood, yeah, we, he needs to be somewhat involved here. And wouldn't you know who won the pony? Harding collapses and dies of what we think was probably pneumonia or related illness on a West Coast tour. And now all of a sudden we get President Calvin Coolidge. Yeah, I mean, that was almost nice of Harding to say, you know, he's vice president, he should sit in. I mean, that's pretty sensible. I know he was a bit of an interesting character, but it was sensible. But it helped Coolidge because he wasn't actually that close to Harding. So when years later all the stuff came out about Teapot Dome and all the corruption, all the sex scandals, Coolidge was clean because there was nothing on him doing anything really naughty. He was hands-off, but he was you know, a faithful husband. There's no major scandals. So that, you know, helped him a lot. But obviously, you know, the Harding thing was covered up for quite a while. But you can imagine Coolidge finding out and not saying anything and just being like, Oh, living up to the nickname. But I do think it's cute his father swore him in. I just think that's a really adorable family bonding moment. Yeah, you're the president now. I'm going to swear you in. Yeah, so the thing with Coolidge, too, is he did, had something that happened to a lot of these guys. He actually ended up taking the oath of office more than once. Now, this has happened a couple times. This has happened recently where they had, remember, um, 
John Roberts, they redid it just to make sure because he bumbled a word and they just wanted to make sure. So they did it again, even though it was, you know, the legalities of it. This was another one. He actually took the oath twice just to make sure they got it right. How in the world are we still fumbling the oath of office at this point, just doing it over and over again, make sure we got it right, like it's some kind of magic spell? Well, because they weren't sure if it was legitimate under um, his father, because his father was like a notary of the public, but it wasn't like a proper, like, federal judge so this happened with another president they weren't sure if it counted that's why they did it, it wasn't fumbling the words it was, they just weren't sure it ca- technically counted and i wanted to do it in public as well because he did it in the middle of nowhere with no electricity or phone lines hence why it's took ages for them to locate him some to reason about because he was literally climbing a mountain when word came and there was nowhere near civilization yeah but what could be more american than getting sworn in by a notary republic and your father i just like i said I mean, that's really sweet a notary Yeah, that was a play on words. I said notarily Republic, but that's funny. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. All right, uh, Sarah Stoke joining us. Very famous vice president that ascended for a couple of different reasons. Harry Truman. Um, of course, FDR had poor health his entire life. It was hidden from the public. So for the public, it was a shock when FDR died because for most of them, he had been president most of their adult lives. Most of them didn't remember any other president than FDR. Truman comes in, you know, you, there's politics involved here. You know, he oversees the Second World War ending. He oversees the beginning of Korea. He has to follow FDR, which is not an easy task. He drops the atomic bomb. Harry Truman, people have kind of forgotten that he ascended after FDR, though, because of all the stuff that happened during his own presidency. 
Well, yes, because FDR was, like you said, very poorly, but it wasn't until like photos of the Ulster conference came out that everyone realised how, you know, pale was. You know, it was said that Stalin and Churchill were aghast when they saw him. If you see pictures, he's so frail and so tired looking. It's clear that something is wrong. But the reason Truman was chosen partially because they knew that Roosevelt had a good chance of not making the term. They knew he was poorly. So they needed to pick someone who would be decent. So the first vice Roosevelt's first vice president was seen as too conservative for Democrat. The next was seen as too left-wing, so Truman was like the compromise candidate. But, you know, they barely saw each other. They met about three times in private between the inauguration and Roosevelt's death. Truman didn't even know about the Manhattan Project. Somebody pulled him aside after. He was like, oh, by the way, we're gonna, we've are gonna we got some nukes. Eisenhower knew about it as, like, head of the army, but Truman was found out. He was like, oh. Okay, and that's a pretty big thing to put on somebody. Yeah, we've got these nuclear weapons that could kill thousands of people. Do you want to do it? It might save more people, but it's still a horrible thing. And, you know, it's still so controversial today, isn't it? I mean, there's a reason why the Japanese don't like nuclear weapons and they're pushing for disarmament. Yeah, interesting stuff with Truman. When he left office, he was very unpopular, but that comes from firing MacArthur and some other stuff. And again, he had to follow FDR. Nobody's going to follow that with the contemporary... But the historians have been pretty kind to him over the years. He's one of those presidents whose reputation has changed quite a bit uh, in the years since he served. I mean, you get that. I mean, if you look at somebody like Andrew Jackson, he was praised by historians. And I think rightly so, you know, paid off the national debt, things like that. He was quite a good president. But then you look at things like how he treated the Native Americans Things like that usually come to perspective later, and things like civil rights. Woodrow Wilson usually praises a very good president, but also, I mean, he was extra racist for the time, which means he was racist. Then you get some who get, you know, people are warmer. You know, George Bush Jr., you know, very controversial, but I think people are actually softer on him now, which is really interesting. Maybe they're comparing to Trump when the Iraq war still controversial, but people seem to be a bit softer on him, which I find quite interesting. But I don't think he'll ever be ranked one of the greatest. Sarah Stook joining us. Okay, the most famous of these by far, and it's because of the photograph involved, uh, plus the circumstances, but Lyndon B. Johnson, the Kennedy assassination, the famous photo on the plane, Jackie's standing there shell That I'm actually happy that there's no video of this because, God, this just had to be horrific for everybody involved. Johnson doesn't want to be there. Nobody wants to be there. Jackie's just shell shocked standing there, but there's the famous photograph on the plane. Plane was actually on the ground, you know the there the body's on the plane of President Kennedy. For that generation, this was the watershed moment. You know, anybody of my parents' generation, it's always where were you when Kennedy was shot, right? This is just an indelible image in the American psyche. So by far, this is probably the most famous of these on your list. But there's some interesting background into all this, you know, and little tidbit of history, the only woman to ever swear on a president happened right here. And called Sarah, because it's the best name. <laughs> hey, that was a cheap pop. But anyway, interesting <laughs> stuff surrounding this, not just because of the Kennedy assassination, but Johnson getting sworn in on the plane, 
the woman that swore him in. Just give us a little of the background on this one. Well, Texas, it was a year just about a year before the next election, and Texas, which had been solidly Democrat for many, many years, as well as the other parts of the South, was starting to look a bit like it could slip through Kennedy's fingers. So Kennedy and Jackie, who usually didn't go to these things, but they've become quite close since the death of their infant son Patrick. She joined him, uh, the Johnsons, and Governor Colin. Uh, Connolly uh, and his wife, who would later Connolly would later become a Republican. He was quite a conservative Democrat. So you know they did a whistle stop tour of some other cities, and then in Dallas, um, about you know midday, obviously Kennedy was shot. Governor Connolly was also shot. There was a um, bystander who whose cheek was nipped, and obviously the police officer Tippett, who would also be killed by Oswald later in the day. So obviously the Connollys and the Kennedys were about two cars ahead of the Johnsons, and then obviously shots rang out, went to Parkland Johnson and Mr Johnson put safely away in a room. Then somebody called it, what they called Mr Johnson president, which is when uh, Mr Johnson would later say, that's when I knew because he was referred to as Mr President. And this happened very quickly. You know, Kennedy was shot midday, half uh, 12, died at 1pm. and about half an hour later Johnson was sworn in so this happened in what two hours which is a very very quick two hours it's like the length of a film one moment you're in the car and you're vice president and then two hours later you're president the one before he was assassinated his widow is just looking shocked I mean I know Johnson's a controversial character but can you imagine that that's I think it's probably m- m- the most horrific yeah the, it Again, I I opened it up with this. Like I'm I'm on one hand, I wish there was video on this, but on one the other hand, I'm glad they didn't film this because the, everything going on there just had to be the the picture speaks for itself. When you look at the faces and you look at everybody involved, and you know the picture of Jackie Kennedy is the one everybody remembers. You know, l- literally had her husband in her lap at one point, crawling off the car and all that. You know, she's just staring off into the distance, really. I mean, she had PTSD. Afterwards, it's you know it was kept quiet, but yeah. she was treated afterwards, and it was the kind of thing that probably wasn't really discussed back then, especially maybe for a woman. But your husband got his bla- his brains blow out in front of you. You know, you're holding on you, literally, not to be yeah. graphic about it, but you know, she's got blood everywhere. She's holding him as he dies. He's he's like gurgling and breathing, but he can't talk. So he's like breathing, but you know, you get to hospital and the doctors say, you know, he's not dead, but we can't do anything. I wrote an article a while back about presidential deaths and whether they could have been prevented. And I said, even in the same age, Kennedy had his brains blurred out. Even the best neurologist, neurosurgeons in the world could not do it. He would have died. Sheriff Stuck. All right, a little bit lighter note, but a dark moment in American history. Gerald Ford, um, of course, he takes over when Nixon resigns. Still, the only president to resign. Although we, y'all, y'all get resignations all the time. That's actually <laughs> the preferred method of getting rid of your prime ministers. They resign. They just, they just go hit the skids. We haven't, we haven't mastered this yet. We need to work on it. We should have more resignations than we have. 
Ford comes in. Um, he bites the bullet and pardons uh, Nixon just to try to get the country moving. He's got one of the worst economies modern America has ever seen, which kneecaps him. Still overperforms what people thought he was going to do in the election. He holds off a guy named Ronald Reagan in the primary temporarily. Um, loses to Jimmy Carter. Ford's another one of those guys where you kind of go, you know, great human being, perfect man for the job at the time, probably not a great president with the circumstances, but his rise is one of those where it's a good, how he handled it probably made it a lot better than what it probably could have been or should have been. Yeah. Ronald Reagan, I wonder whatever happened to him. I don't know. I think he made some commercials or something. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they they picked Ford as the vice president because, A, they knew Nixon was in trouble and they needed somebody who was universally liked and respected everybody on the Hill, on both parties. You know, he's an upstanding man, no scandals. He's, you know, good at his job. And he wanted to be speaker. And he thought, oh, vice president, nice way to end my career. And then they were getting ready to, to go live at the uh, vice presidential address. And then somebody came and said, yeah, there's these tapes coming out on Monday. It's not looking too good. And Ford turned to Betty and said, I don't think we're going to be living in the vice presidential house. Basically, probably the first and only accidental president to kind of know his fate beforehand. Interestingly, he's one of the very few. Like, Here's how the vice presidency has changed. It would be a political scandal to change your vice president in the middle of an administration now. He had to replace, of course, a vice president that was scandalized. But people forget Lincoln went through a couple different vice presidents before getting to Andrew Johnson, which, of course, Johnson got impeached. You know, Johnson got impeached. Johnson showed up to his swearing in under Lincoln so drunk that they had to send him home. You know, Johnson's probably not a great example. Like, people forget vice president was an interchangeable part. Ford replaced a vice president. But he also um, replaced one on the ticket. He replaced yeah. one with a doll in 76 so he did yeah. the same thing and then he did the same thing but if if biden was to replace vice president harris that would be almost I, I know the internet clamors about stuff like this but like that's just unheard of now you would never do that now it'd be political suicide it'd be seen as a but the vice president we was seen as an interchangeable thing it's really really changed now hasn't it yeah i still think the vice president probably doesn't have as much power as you would think for somebody who's a heartbeat away from the presidency. Now, like I said earlier, I think Dick Cheney is definitely the most powerful we've had because, you know, Bush let him basically have, obviously we don't know the whole thing, Bush, Bush essentially let him have free reign. I mean, Kamala Harris probably does have her, you know, she does have her constitutional duties of being over the Senate, but I think she's sort of been pushed into a role of, you know, going and doing speaking engagements. Because you forget that most of the time, presidents and vice presidents aren't friends. The only one who were genuinely close were Carter and Mondale. They've either had a good working relationship or some really hated each other, like Calhoun and Jackson, who wanted to kill Calhoun, though he did want to kill a lot of people, to be fair. So, Yeah, and to be fair to, to President Biden, I think him and her really do get along. And I think he wanted that above everything else because him and Obama really got along when President Obama. But, you know, I think he wanted that to be a non-issue. I think he wanted to be a congenial relationship, a working relationship. So to President Biden's credit, I think he really does get along with her. And I think that was his goal was to have a vice president. They don't need along. to be best mates, but as long as, you know, they work. I mean, there's, you know, a generational 20 right. odd year generational gap. But, you know, there's been plenty of you know many different generations so you know you can expect that and so long as they don't 
I mean, there's always been rumours that they're briefing against one another. But, you know, years later, after the Obama-Biden administration, it came out that Obama had his, you know, worries about Biden. So it maybe wasn't as close as we thought. But so long as they sort of, you know, don't actively want to kill each other, and it works for the country, obviously, because that's the most important part. I think that'll be the model going forward, though. Like, you know, Bush and Cheney, you know, Cheney had a portfolio he took care of. He did the form foreign policy stuff. Biden, although the Obama administration was very different, you know, Obama gave him some very public stuff to do, you know, whether it was ceremonial or not, he gave him stuff to do. Biden and Vice President Harris, you know, he 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 goes out of his way to give her some shine on stuff. I think that's the model going forward, though. I think it's going to be a working relationship presented that way, whether they get along or not, at least publicly facing. I think that's the new model, at least for the next couple cycles. Yeah, I mean, I'll see if Trump runs again, which, you know, he probably is, and he does actually get to the nomination and picks a vice president. It's not going to be Mike Pence again. But it'll be interesting to see if he, he does pick someone he gets along with, because I think him and Mike Pence are, like, totally different people who, you know, maybe had were polite to each other, but I don't think there was any love lost. So it'll be interesting, yeah. but, you know, I you don't know. He might run it as an independent. He might pick a Republican. You never know. Um, I'm thinking Ron DeSantis will probably win the nomination for the Republicans, barring a major catastrophe. Who will he pick? You know, you don't know because you've got to look at it's not just about who's your friend, it's about geography, um, maybe if they're a minority, things like that. They t that tends to, you know, be way more important than if you like them as a person. Yeah, it'll be interesting to watch. And of course, we, we know President Trump pretty well by now. There is nobody that he won't put underneath the bus. So good luck to anybody that gets that job as vice president uh, nominee with him. Sarah Stuck, always enjoy talking to you. This is an elections-daily.com. We love those folks a lot. These are great little historical pieces to have. We'll link to the whole thing. Sarah, let folks know where they can find you and follow you until we get you back on Hertel again. Um, so we've uh, continued with presidential runners-up. We're getting into uh, about the 1920s now. Uh, for the Mallard, I'm writing about uh, consorts, but I'm also going to do a piece about surrogacy because that's been in the news recently, and I think that's quite an interesting thing. Um, and I also have a piece out for the Mallard about 10 fictional women who don't suck, based purely on the whole Velma situation and how strong, independent women are written in the media who usually are just like not that good. Yeah, and you've wrote about this before. There's so many historical women that need some Hollywood attention. It'd be nice if they'd go through some of them uh, first. But we'll talk about that next time. Sarah Stuck, always enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, ma'am. Bye. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. 
sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you.